The Womanizer is not just any intimate toy for vulva owners, it is THE toy for vulva owners. What makes the Womanizer so special? Their vibrator is equipped with a patented pleasure air technology. I love my Womanizer duo. So it has the clitoral pleasure air technology, but it also has uh, an arm for internal G-spot vibration. And it's nice because you can control both. And there are several different um, intensity levels and different patterns. And oh, it's just fantastic. Um, it typically has me orgasming in just a couple of minutes and usually multiple times over. I tell everybody about this product. Every vulva owner I know, I have said, you need a womanizer duo. And now I am telling all of you as well. Whether you're looking for something for yourself or that special person in your life, you can't go wrong with the duo. If you're interested in only clitoral stimulation, then I also highly recommend any number of their womanizer products. They're handheld, easy to use, and they provide lovely pleasure. Uh, I have the Womanizer Starlet 3, and it is also uh, one of my go-tos. It's, you're going to have a good time. I can promise you that much. Uh, check out the link in this week's episode description to find the Womanizer product that's right for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Shopa. Happy New Year, everybody! That's right. This episode is coming out on January 1st, 2022, which really doesn't even seem possible. Like, sometimes it feels like I'm still in 2019. It feels like 2020 and 2021 both were filled with so much stuff, and a lot of it just (laughs) garbage, um, that... It just seems like the, the years have been flying by. I don't know if, if this is something happens as you get older. Is this what getting older feels like? Time is fleeting. Um, but anyway, I am excited for the new year. I hope that wherever you are, you have celebrated the ending of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. And you did so in a way that feels joyful for you. I am having a low-key New Year's Eve, uh, just playing some games with some of my friends. And uh, yeah, that'll be about it. So I'm going to keep this intro relatively short because next week I will be coming on, um, just me, and I'll be talking about my 2021 reflection and my 2022 year ahead talk about my goals and what what we have to look forward to for this new year um so with that being said i'm just going to go ahead and talk about today's episode and i considered releasing this episode on the 8th and releasing my kind of new year's episode on the first but honestly I don't want to wait that long to put this out. This episode has so much fantastic information in it. And I feel like I can't think of a single person who would not benefit from this from listening to the to the information in this episode. Um, whether you are somebody who is already working with a mental health professional, you're considering working with a mental health professional, you are a mental health professional, if you work with people, if you work in a business, anything. This is, there's so many important things that we cover in this episode. Uh, Also want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. There is mention of eating disorders. Um, So if you are really sensitive to that subject, make sure that you are taking care of yourself. This is such a great episode. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about DEI programs. We talk about decolonization. We talk about mental health. And you're going to love it. Our guest today is a licensed psychologist, certified EMDR therapist, and gender therapist with more than 15 years of experience providing training and mental health services. 
Their work as a clinician, educator, trainer, writer, and advocate are informed by social justice, cultural awareness, and humility. They believe emotional wellness is influenced by a wide range of internal and contextual socio-cultural factors. Everybody, please give a wonderful, warm welcome to today's guest, Dr. Sand Chang. Well, welcome, Dr. Sand. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Absolutely. So um, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about your work. What do you do? Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist and I split my time between doing psychotherapy with individuals, mostly trauma work and at the intersections of gender, sexuality, eating disorders, and relationships. And the rest of the work I do is organizational consulting um, related to diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So the overarching umbrella of my work is liberation, body liberation, helping people to feel safer in their environments and in their bodies. That's awesome. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this work because I think we all recognize how needed it is. Um, and for myself, I'm very big on body diversity and body neutrality. So I cannot thank you enough for taking this on. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, obviously, I'm very passionate about this work. It's not just an intellectual interest. It is also out of my own lived experience, having many identities and positionalities in the world that have kind of created this experience where I could take on these messages of it's not okay to be in your body. And I certainly have. And so this work is about my own personal healing, as well as helping other people with healing and being able to claim more safety, more liberation in their bodies. Yeah, that that's so powerful. And I'm sure it's also can be emotionally draining. Um, but it sounds like it's a really wonderful fit. And so that kind of leads me into my next question, which is what led to your career in psychology? Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. So many people ask me about what led me to doing eating disorders work or trans health, but in psychology in general. So, you know, as a young person growing up in my family, I definitely was affected by um, severe mental illness. I think there was some unconscious unconscious part of me that really wanted to be able to save a family member who was struggling and really kind of have the answers and maybe have an unconscious attempt at control or um, maybe less pathologizing is just a desperate desire to help. Um, in addition, I was sort of the scapegoated uh, problem child. So I had a lot of challenges with emotion regulation, anger, definitely was the angry child. And I had a lot of my own struggles with acting out as a teen. So I actually landed myself in therapy when I was 
17 or 18. And at this time, it just wasn't really common for peers to, or people, I think in general, to talk openly about being in therapy the way that I think it is now. I think um, in, in many circles, it's destigmatized, not all, there's still a lot of stigma, but I definitely landed in therapy at a young age and started doing my own work and getting into my own recovery work around substance abuse, addiction, and my own eating disorder. And I know you said that you are kind of work doing your own personal work as you're helping others. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how do you kind of protect your own emotions and your own mental health while doing this work? Because mm -hmm. it seems like it could get very challenging. Yeah, I, I think one of the misconceptions out there about doing this kind of work is that we need to compartmentalize. And I spent so much of my life compartmentalizing and I think once I started to feel like the work that I do is actually deeply intertwined in a respectful and boundary way, of course, I don't really talk about my stuff with most of my clients unless there's a good reason to. Um, but when I when I really allow for there to be less of this weird hierarchy or separation between the healer and the client or the therapist and the client, the more I see that my struggle is connected to your struggle. And that doing this work is going to bring up um, feelings for me, and I need to be attuned to that. And then generally outside of session, if I have reactions or feelings in response to something that's come up, I do my own work. I do my own, you know, have my own meditation practice and my own recovery communities and, um, you know, ways, uh, my own therapy, you know, my own ways of dealing with what comes up. It's rare that I feel really intensely impacted by the work because I've been doing it for so long and because I've done so much of my own work. And I, I really do think it's important for therapists to do as much of their own healing work as possible, knowing that we can never get to a, a final destination where we're just healed or enlightened. But I think we owe it to um, our clients to do the healing work that is necessary so that we can be present and not be in what I would um, what I've heard called a regressive relationship. So if I haven't done my work in a specific realm, I can only take someone so far. And I think about that a lot with respect to like the eating disorders work that I did for a long time, not understanding that I was still so deeply entrenched in diet culture. So I do think it, it is our responsibility um, as healers and professionals to really be deeply invested in our own healing. Yeah, absolutely. It's It sounds very much like, and I know it's um, been said so much lately that it sounds kind of trite, but you know, you have to put on your mask before you can put on other people's oh, masks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love that idea. You know, I, and I, um, the other thing that I often say is research is me search, you know, so any kind of like professional hat that I put on, I have to be, you know, aware of the ways that I'm still a human. I'm not just the researcher, the interviewer, the um, practitioner, but that, you know, actually my own feelings are a gift and they can be a tool for me to understand what's happening um, in the room or in an interaction. That is a really prolific thought. And I think, um, you know, for so long in, in business, it's kind of been said like, oh, don't bring your emotions to work. But I feel like a lot of good can come from our emotions when we think about mm -hmm. intuition, what brings us joy, what makes us concerned. And I feel like when we're able to recognize them, make space for them and talk about them, that's where the good shit happens, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is so connected to the work that I do with organizations. And so you know, this idea that we want to be able to show up in our full selves and not have to check any of our identities at the door. And that's something that anyone who is BIPOC or trans or queer or autistic or, you know, really, or an immigrant or any other experience that's not a dominant culture experience, that experience is supposed to be checked at the door. Somehow it's seen as unprofessional. And I think the same goes for feelings. It's like, you're supposed to bring your rational slash professional self and feelings are seen as unprofessional. 
And that really gets in the way of us being able to have connection in the workplace, um, safety and psychological safety in the workplace. And so I'm really interested in helping organizations to be able to build their capacity in being able to hold everyone that they're bringing in, not just parts of people that they're hiring. Can you shed a little light on what kind of work needs to be done to make that a possibility in organizations? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I mean, there is a lot of work to be done. I, I will say that, you know, most organizations seek me out and want me to bring a training. And I think that's well-meaning, but a training really doesn't get at some of the systemic and, um, and sort of the systems issues that need to be addressed. And so it's not just about, here's some content about trans folks, which is definitely important, um, that information for increased awareness and exposure and skills. Um, but it's, you know, everything from the first touch point you have with a customer or with a potential employee. So it starts with your HR practices, starts with your workflows, your physical your built environments, um, all of those things. And so it's really a joy for me to be able to work with um, systems and workplaces that are aware that they need a huge overhauling. And so that and, and so I guess to answer your question, what's necessary for these changes to happen is openness, humility, and, and an authentic investment and commitment, not one that is performative or optical or just in response to George Floyd and uprisings, um, because a lot of those, those motivations are, are dying down. We're seeing that now. Um, so, you know, organizations that are in it for the long haul. Yeah. Yeah. I know after the death of George Floyd, there was definitely an increase in DEI programs coming mm -hmm. up and there was oh, yeah. more conversation about that. But I feel like a lot of those programs really miss the mark. It's a, you know, I hope that it's a sincere and solid attempt, but it just doesn't seem to do a whole lot. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm wondering what are some things that companies, um, that you're seeing are doing really well in this realm and what are some things that still need to be improved upon? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of it is just the ways that DEI is positioned or, or like how it's approached in an organization. It's still fairly siloed off people who opt in, people who are interested, uh, people who volunteer and aren't compensated. So that's a, it's a problem because the, the message is this is optional. And so one of the things that's really important is looking at every single level of an organization and getting buy-in from folks who want to do this work and also letting go of people who aren't in line with that. And so really looking at what are these, what are the values that we have? And not every organization is gonna have those values. And so I just want that to be clear because I think that's one of the challenges is that you know the, the efforts are being made, but the values really aren't in place. And so having that be congruent is important. Although I would say that doing some of this work does change an organization's culture or values. Another thing is to invest in a, in, in a project and a process that takes time. So much of what we've learned as humans and how we've learned to distrust each other, to judge each other, to hurt each other is really old stuff. And one training you know, on DEI or on race is really not going to address that. And so my hope is that we really look at like the embodiment, the what's happening from a trauma-informed perspective. I say the word DEI training, everyone shuts down because they've already experienced something that's shaming or overly didactic or even... Um, 
kind of infantilizing. And so when we start to understand that everyone in the situation, and I want to preface this and say, I'm not saying everyone's harmed in the same way or all lives matter, anything like that. But what I'm saying is that everyone's having some kind of nervous system response, some kind of activated response. And in order for shifts to happen, we need to start building the kinds of safety that don't come with, oh, just simply doing a training. And having leadership on board is is not, not just on board, but really active. Really active is important. That includes, you know, executives, it includes board members, um, really people at every level of an organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too that a lot of times people kind of like throw out these blanket programs, these blanket statements and say, oh, this is how we're going to address the inequalities between people of color and white folks. And it, it doesn't really address the individuality and the intersectionality. And mm -hmm. so I love that you brought up trauma-informed care because that's mm -hmm. something that I just learned about a little over a year ago. But once mm -hmm. I learned about it, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like revolutionizing it's so important and it's not just you know when we talk about trauma it's not just in the field of psychology or psychotherapy i mean that's a given unfortunately so many therapists are actually not very trauma informed even trauma specific therapists like i'm an emdr therapist and i would say that not everyone is even informed about um, how to really respect the nervous system and before you go in and do some deep trauma or healing work. Um, so, you know, trauma-informed care should be a given in our field. It's not, <laughs> it isn't really. And um, it should be in any place where human beings are, are coexisting, really, in yoga studios and um, places where touch might be used. That's an incredibly important place for that awareness to be there um, for organizations and putting people together and not understanding the ways that power dynamics are actually replicating and perpetuating so many systems of oppression. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I am obviously really big on this and you know, still learning so much. It's not anything I learned in my own graduate training as a psychologist. So much of my training was very heady, very disembodied. And it's just been in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so that I've really been interested much more in somatic approaches. And so I do consider myself a somatic therapist at this point. Yeah. And when you say a somatic therapist, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a good question because I used to think it meant like, oh, does that mean you're doing like touch work? You're like a massage therapist or body worker. It could involve touch, but not always. So for me, being a somatic therapist means that I am looking at the whole person, not just their story, um, the story that comes from their brains or comes out of their mouths. I'm really interested in the sensations that they're feeling and experiencing. So the, the full realm. Um, and, and that often for me, you know, I'm mostly on Zoom. Um, and even in person, I don't do touch work, not yet. I think that's something that I'm moving towards eventually, but I'm in that training soon. Um, but it means helping people to tune in to their bodies, which is not easy because most of us have been socialized to be disembodied, to over rely on intellect, to subjugate our bodies and kind of make it function or work for us rather than be something that we care for actively. And so I think about somatic work as, as like re getting reacquainted with our bodies. And I do believe in, um, in us being born to with a certain ability or capacity to listen to our bodies. If you think about babies, they know when they're hungry, they let you know, um, they cry, they stop eating when they don't want any more food. They haven't gotten the kind of socialization that we have as adults to 
distrust our bodies, tell our bodies you should exercise when you're tired, you should eat this disgusting food because it's healthy or whatever else, you know, the, the ways that we impose things on our bodies or we make our bodies work far more than they're meant to or look at screens far more than they're meant to. And I mean, those are like the the principles of intuitive eating is listening mm-hmm. to your body. And exactly. it's hard. It's it hard is, when it you've is been... really hard. Yeah. It is really. And and I, I like to tell my clients that this isn't something, some kind of quick skill I can teach you in one sitting and you'll have it. It's something that we start and we just build and build and build. And over time, you are able to do that. You're able to feel into when you're hungry. You're able to feel into when you're full or when your body needs to move or when it needs to rest. And these are things that are very difficult to access in the context of diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that kind of brings me to my next question. What are some modalities that you use when you're working with clients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say um, my number one, what I'm absolutely in love with is internal family systems, or it's called IFS therapy. And it um, it is an approach that assumes and normalizes multiplicity in terms of our internal experience and the idea that we all have parts and it's not a pathological thing that we all have parts that might have different experiences, maybe carrying different beliefs or burdens and that um, we have parts that are even out of our awareness. And so um, there are parts that may do things that help us a great deal, but there are also parts that may create some challenges in our lives. And if we, we can create more harmony within ourselves and also be led by, you know, what we might refer to as the capital S self, um, that, that, you know, parts are no longer running the show because they feel cared for and they feel led by, you know, this idea of, of self. Um, So this is an approach that I am absolutely in love with, has been completely life-changing for me, being on the end of being the client. And so that's kind of my my number one, I would say my primary partnership. (laughs) Um, And then the other approaches that I really love and weave in are somatic experiencing, which then brings in so much more about the nervous system um, and looking at you know what happens to us as organisms when we are dysregulated, when we're um, you know activated, and helps us to get back into being able to feel or express uh, and yeah, be in our bodies, and that is very powerful, very subtle work, also life changing for me. So I would say those are my two main approaches. I'm also an EMDR therapist, but I've used EMDR less and less over the years. Um, I I think it's a powerful tool. I don't use it often anymore because I find that um, I'm more interested in in IFS and and SE, to be honest. And, And then with couples, I do attachment work. So emotionally focused therapy and helping couples to track connection, disconnection, looking at what's happening them from an attachment lens. So yeah, that's kind of long winded, but those are the things that I do today. And they're not what I was trained in. I had to seek out this training because all of my earliest training was psychoanalytic. And then um, working in large medical systems, I was DB, I was a DBT therapist for many years. So, but yeah, I, I think my work has changed a, a lot and it, and I've changed my own healing work has been parallel to that. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love that you bring in different modalities because I imagine Absolutely. some things work better for other people. Absolutely. And, and I'm big on this because I think there's camps of different kinds of therapists. They believe that theirs is the right way. And I think that that idea of the right way is such a characteristic of white supremacy culture. And I don't think we can have a culturally responsive therapy if we only have one tool. So I've always been really big on use what works for this client and don't expect that just because it's worked with this other client or even has been validated um, by research um, for a bunch of white, cis, straight people, that it will be effective for everyone. 
snaps to that. <laughs> yes, I hear that entirely. And that really nicely leads into my next question, which is, um, you know, within the past year or so, we've heard the word decolonize a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, I know with part of your work, you're working on decolonizing, you know, psychotherapy. So can you tell us what decolonizing is and how you're working to to change the field? Mm. I think it's a great question. And also, like, I notice parts of me that feel like, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of pressure. Um, and because it can't be just a practice that happens within an individual or by an individual. I mean, colonialism is this huge uh process this huge project that has been happening for centuries and is still happening and um there are some really amazing people who are doing work on decolonizing therapy and so i really feel like i'm just i'm here to learn from them and try to implement as much as i can in my own practice where i've where i've talked about this the most is within the realms of eating disorders and transgender health um, one of the reasons why it's so compelling to and important to talk about it in trans health is because our conceptions of gender, our binary systems of gender are colonialist systems. And there is a long history of the punishment and erasure um, of any kind of expression that didn't fall into the binary of male, man, masculine, female, woman, feminine. And so it's really important to raise awareness around this gender diversity that we're seeing. This expansion is really not something new. This has happened. This has existed on every continent for centuries. And so we have to actually decolonize our ideas about gender. I'll also say that, you know, there's a great um, article called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Basically, it's not, I, I think this practice is about changing our perspectives and approaches and knowing that we have power and we could be perpetuating systems of oppression or we could be actively resisting and dismantling them. So I think that that's a really important part of the process. But I also think that any conversation that involves the word decolonize that doesn't actually acknowledge land and resources that have been stolen and customs that have been stolen from indigenous peoples um, is really short-sighted. And so that's where I'm trying to deeply learn about, you know, what is my role as a visitor um, on this land, you know? And yes, I may not be a, a white person or I don't have um, ancestors who, you know, colonize this land, but I still benefit. Um, from using this land and inhabiting this land that isn't mine. And so I think a lot about, you know, how can I um, divest as much as possible from systems that are part of a colonialist structure, which is also part of a white supremacist structure? And how can I also um, actively participate in redistribution and any work that I do um, that I'm thinking about and actively trying to move the money. And so that's one of my great joys, actually, um, is trying. I, I love talking to smart, awesome, rad people doing work that is aligned with, you know, decolonization and anti-oppression work. And so I love to bring people together, usually people that I just want to talk to and um, and have people come and witness these conversations and um, you know, we do pay ourselves because I think that's important and we move money and we, or, you know, we um, donate it. We donate it to organizations that are doing work that is actively, um, you know, it, you know, actively interfacing with folks who are most deeply affected and negatively impacted by colonialism. So, so that's a really exciting thing. And I, and I really try to urge other practitioners to think about where their money is coming from and where it needs to be moving um, and how they can actively participate in redistribution. Yeah, that's so important. Um, even thinking about, you know, Amazon is a huge corporation and, you know, I get it. I, I get that it's nice having two day shipping and, and all oh, of that, yeah. but 
all of our comforts, our modern life efficiency and comforts, but they come with a cost, a huge unseen cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of us don't have the luxury of being aware of that cost. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's important for for everybody to be educating each other. Right. And it's not, I don't even know that I would think about it as a luxury, but more so something that's actively and intentionally um, hidden from our awareness. You know, I, we see the shiny, flashy things that we need to have to be better or to feel better, or to be more healthy or whatever it might be. And, and that is all the, the veneer, right? And um, I don't think that most people who are engaging in or supporting Amazon or um, the many other companies that are, um, you know, let's say at times have questionable practices um, when it comes to social good or comes to environmental um, good. You know, I don't think most people who are engaging are actively aware of or thinking about the ways in which communities are being harmed. Something that's challenging is that when we're brought into awareness, it's painful, it's uncomfortable. We care about people. I mean, most people have some empathy. However, the pull of capitalism and the pull of going back to things as they are or things that are easy because we're so busy, because we're workers in, under capitalism, the pull is so strong that most people dissociate from the painful truths that they might actually be brought into awareness of. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's that's perfectly stated. It's, yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I matrix. definitely want to. I'm always talking about the matrix. <laughs> it's like, you know, here we are, the, the fourth installment of the matrix, you know, franchise is coming out. <laughs> but I think about that a lot. I think about, gosh, you know, the, the cost of awareness and even just, you know, like, yeah, the shininess of the matrix and the, like the dull barrenness you know, that's depicted in these movies, right? When they're not in the matrix. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to have to think about all of that. So I'm excited to edit this now. (laughs) (laughs) What is because there are so many things that are wrong, so many things that need to be fixed to make this a better, a better place, a better society for everybody. Do you have maybe one small thing that most people could do that could just move the needle a bit? I know that's a big task. (laughs) It's so funny to like have to think of one small thing. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we could do. And I think that the, even the smallest things, they might feel like they're not enough and they're not enough, right? They're, They're not, but I do think a lot about us as humans and what we need to feel resourced. And when we are resourced, we can make better choices. We can care more about other people. Just think about what it means to have more regulation in our systems. And so, you know, when you said, oh, there's so much bad, I just thought, gosh, some of the work that I've learned to do as a somatic experiencing therapist, um, not can't yet call myself a practitioner or an SEP, but something that is important is this idea of pendulation and this concept that we need to be able to move and create more flexibility between what is charged or activating or painful or the, the trauma material and what is resourcing, what is good, what helps us to feel grounded, what helps us to bring in those feelings that can create resilience um, and for our systems to be able to move more flexibly between the two. And so I know, you know, as a, a young person, as a therapist, as someone involved in social justice work, that it's really, really easy to get completely wrapped up in everything that's bad, 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 and everything is broken, needs to be fixed. And that's actually totally true. And I believe that. And it's not everything actually, it's that there is good and not in a way 
like not in a pox, a toxic positivity way, not in a look on the bright side, at least this, you know, like that drives me up the wall. Mm -hmm. um, it really is about being able to hold both that. Yes, these things are hard and it's these things, the things that nourish us, the connections we have, the amazing people who are doing this work, the, the land, the nature, the, you know, everything that we have that can nourish us. These are the things that can allow us to do this really hard work and allow us to keep going, you know, allows us to make this process, this life sustainable and livable. And so just being able to pause and be able to, even in the worst moments, the hardest moments, be able to look around and access the things that give us joy, give us strength, give us meaning. Um, and it could be our ancestors and what they went through. It could also be silly things like my little dogs that are like my three, you know, best teachers and sources of joy in my life. So, um, yeah, being able to resource ourselves with, with, with what is good in, in our lives or in the world as well. Yeah. I love that. I'm a huge gratitude nerd. Um, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. And it does give me a glimmer of hope. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I love gratitude practice. And, and like, and again, not as a, because I, I will say, you know, I, I think I did grow up with a, with a mom who would say, you should be grateful. And, you know, when I had, I was a very sensitive young person. So I had lots of feelings. And so hearing you should be grateful was you shouldn't be complaining. And so there's a part of me that's like, oh no, I won't be grateful. Um, <laughs> but then there's another part of me that knows that like, there is so much to be grateful for, even in the midst of this really devastating pandemic. You know, there are things that I've been able to come back to and be grateful for. And that's what keeps me going. Yeah, absolutely. And I always think about it as gratitude doesn't make everything that's wrong right it doesn't automatically fix everything yeah you can shift your attention away to something that's good for right. a moment or um, even allow me to not love the thing that's happening that's painful but to know that there's something that i'm gonna learn um and sometimes that is the shift that i need to make going to say i don't know why i'm going through this and why it's so shitty but i know that there's something I'm going to get through and there's something that I can, you know, take from it um, or not take from it, but a way that I am going to grow. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great viewpoint. And I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I, I just wanted to say really quickly, as I was reading through um, your information, one of the things that you had written was you don't need a formal diagnosis to ask for the help that you need. Mm -hmm. And I just really want to thank you for that um, because I feel like there are a lot of us um, who don't have a diagnosis, who mm -hmm. we don't check all of the boxes that we may right. need according to the DSM, but we still need help. And I feel mm -hmm. like it is common for people who don't check all those boxes to get kind of swept under the rug and say, oh, well, you don't really have a problem. Yeah. And so I appreciate your stance on, on validating. Us. Oh yeah. I feel very, very strongly about that. I mean, just from a more thinky, you know, kind of perspective is that these diagnoses were not, um, they are not the be all and end all of human suffering. They're not, this DSM is not the Bible. And so many of these categories are not actually validated on a broad range of diverse populations. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of these diagnoses don't really capture human experience. And then when I come to the more kind of felt sense of experience and like human level of things, I, I think about how many of us were taught that our situations weren't that bad or stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about or, you know, so I think it's a replica, like it replicates that dynamic of, you know, you don't deserve help because it's not bad enough. And I think that's a real problem because then people go on suffering forever, you know, or for a long time and also are told that, um, 
they they're not deserving. And so I feel so strongly about this, especially with eating disorders, especially with eating disorders, because it's actually really, really hard to meet criteria for the eating disorders diagnoses in the DSM. And I don't care, you know, how many times or a week or how many hours or how much you ate, like all these or what your weight is or any of those things that are part of DSM diagnoses for eating disorders. What I care about is, is your relationship with food or your body causing you pain um, or distress? What is your relationship to these things? And so I, I am really interested in that felt and lived experience, not checking boxes for, is it bad enough? Yeah. And I appreciate that fully. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I have so many questions I want to ask you about the DSM, but I know we don't have time. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a couple more questions for you just to kind of wrap up. Yeah. Um, firstly, if somebody is looking to work with a therapist or a, a psychotherapist, what advice do you have for finding one? Because I know it can be really hard when you're already, oh, especially if you're in like a bad mental health place, having yeah. to do the work to find somebody can be a real struggle. Oh, this is one of the ways in which the mental health system is broken. And it's not the fault, the blame is not on the consumer, the client, the individual who's seeking help. But unfortunately, it ends up being pretty demoralizing for someone in that position. Like if you're struggling already with anxiety, depression, or something else, it is so hard to pick up the phone or send an email and ask for help. And then it's so common to face barriers from insurance companies, like to find someone who's who understands what you're dealing with especially if you come from a marginalized identity to find someone who you're not going to have to teach or, 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 or who isn't going to actively harm you is a thing, right? And so, um, yeah, barriers from insurance and also just that everyone is so full right now. I mean, people are really have like, people have come back to therapy, people are starting therapy who never have within the pandemic. And so, it's a real struggle. So I just want to maybe say that to validate it and say, if there's anyone who's struggling with it, it's not your fault. It's a, it's a systemic issue. Um, it's an access issue. Um, and it's also an issue of insurance companies not treating consumers or therapists all that well, right? And so it, 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 it creates challenges all around. Um, but what I would say is, when looking for a therapist, you know, sometimes you're restricted by cost or your insurance. And so, but whatever pool that you have to work with of potential therapists, check them out, look them up, check out their websites, notice how you feel when you're reading these things. Notice if what they say resonates for you. I mean, um, and you should get a sense that you would be comfortable talking to that person and then actively reach out and ask them questions. Don't just, you know, work with anyone, ask them questions that are important to you. You know, let's say you're a trans person seeking a therapist, you know, ask how many trans folks have you worked with? What is your approach to working with transgender people? Um, what, what is your relationship to transgender community? What is your awareness of who you are? You know, like if I were looking for a therapist in this moment, I would be asking someone, especially a cis therapist, you know, why do you do this work? You know, why do you specialize in trans people? You know, and so um, really trying to get a sense. And sometimes I'm listening to the content, but a lot of times I'm just listening to how I feel and if I feel comfortable. And if I feel like this person is warm and welcoming, um, and also depends on what people like. I am not someone who's interested in a, you know, just teach you skills kind of therapist. Um, that's what I did in the past, you know, or even practice in the past. I'm really interested in someone who can do deeper healing work, who is deeply interested in the body, in my own, and I'm doing a lot of ancestral work right now. So um, someone who you know, is just aligned with 
the kind of work that I do um, or that that the kind of person I am and what I'm interested in. So it's I'm not exactly an answering the question for just anyone, but I would say listen to your gut because you are investing time, you are giving this person money and you want, you get to be choosy. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but this is, this is a very important relationship and role. So yes, you know, take your time. Yeah. And I think it's so, it's so helpful coming from you to say like advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, we, if the system isn't working for us, we have to work for ourselves yeah. to find the best possible care for us. So thank you. I, I think that was great advice for anybody is that you have the right to advocate for yourself and ask these questions. Yeah. yeah. And I will just say like there are inherent power dynamics. If someone has a degree, they're in this practitioner role, they have the power to give you a diagnosis that could or couldn't get you the kind of treatment that you have or could or could not stigmatize you. Of course, there's a power dynamic but I am really most interested in therapists who aren't trying to wield that power in a way that is paternalistic or abusive and really looking for people who are collaborative and really, you know, focused on centering the needs of the client instead of let me tell you what to do and let me tell you based on my degrees and my many years of working with people like you, this is what you need to do. Um, that heavy handedness, you know, I'm just, oh, so not into it. Yeah, agreed. Well, I appreciate you so much for coming on. And so I have one last question. Yeah, it might be the most important. Okay. And that is, how can we follow you? How can we find you? Oh. How can we support you? Sure. Okay. So um, I am actually shifting uh, in between websites. So my website has been sanchang.com. And it is moving to shiftingcenter.com. Um, and then on Instagram, you can find me at Hey Dr. Sand. I also, um, you can easily find me and find some of the work that I'm doing. I have online courses. I have a course on decolonizing trans health, one on internal family systems and trans communities. I have one on healing from diet culture that is a much longer and extended course. Um, and so that's out there. And I currently, since we're kind of in the middle of holiday season and diet season, I actually have a, a free download um, that is about divesting from diet culture and thriving through the holidays because that is huge right now. So you can find that on my website as well. Awesome. Well, Dr. Sand, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. This has been so enlightening. I feel like I've learned so much. And so I'm really excited to share with everybody yeah. else. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you. And yeah, thank you for listening. Absolutely. Do you feel stuck and unmotivated? Want to create your dream life, but don't know where to begin? If you're interested in improving your relationships, communication skills, or feeling more comfortable in your skin, I can help. Together we can determine what's holding you back from living your best life and help to quiet that negative Nancy residing in your head. If you've been interested in working with a coach who is optimistic and authentic and empowers you to be as well, then schedule your free 30-minute chemistry session today by going to empoweredauthenticity.net. Again, that's empoweredauthenticity.net. Net. Thank you for listening to Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like more content from Empowered Authenticity, make sure to follow on Instagram at empowered underscore authenticity. We'll see you next week.